Well, children, I failed last week to remind you, and you probably don't need reminding, but I'm going to anyway, your words for this evening that you're listening for are found in the bulletin in their normal place. The words you're listening for tonight are legalism, and grace, and arrogance, humility, self, others, and of course, Jesus, all right? I'm sorry for not doing that last week. Well, it's October 31st, um, and for most of us, that means uh, much more than Reformation, Reformation Day or Halloween. It means that tomorrow officially begins the holiday season. That means tomorrow we all actually catch up with Lowe's and Walmart, right, who've been doing this since October 1st. But we're now all in on it. Uh, we get to join in with the festivities. Um, and of course, that means that there are at least two uh, major family get-togethers and multiple other gatherings and parties that involve meals ahead. And while we look forward, of course, to the fun and the festivities that most of those get-togethers and gatherings and banquets and uh, parties and meals entail, they also, of course, uh, bring with them the potential uh, for conversations that are uncomfortable and even volatile. We have to admit that for some of us, those things may be ahead. Um, so much so that a quick Google search for uh, holiday conversation starters uh, reveals a number of lists of top 10, top 20, top 30 topics or questions that are sure to keep the table talk uh, safe and amicable and allow us to avoid the potential for family fallout and relational conflict. Now, I'm, I'm sure you're wondering what that has to do with that text that Matt just read, and I get that, I understand. But one of the distinctive elements you've probably picked up on in our um, study of Luke is the emphasis that he places on meals, right? There's been this recurring theme of meals and banquets and feasts, and actually there are eight different occasions that Jesus is found sitting down and eating a meal with others, and there are two occasions that the meal is at least inferred or implied. This, tonight, in our text, is the sixth such occasion, and it takes place on a Sabbath, it takes place at lunch, after worship, and it takes place at the home of a very prominent ruler of the Pharisees. And it's not a casual get-together, it is a very formal affair or occasion. The guest list includes a who's who of the Jewish community, probably local, but also more than likely kind of the nation as a whole, right? It, it, there are some very significant figures that are here around or at this uh, gathering this evening. And unfortunately, it's not a friendly affair, okay? It's formal, but not friendly, and we know that for a couple of reasons. One, the scribes and Pharisees have been lying in wait for Jesus to catch him in something he might say since verse 54 of chapter 11, and that was verse 54 of chapter 11. And here in verse 1 of chapter 14, we find that this group 
are watching him carefully. The word actually is they're watching him lurkingly, which means that they are watching in a sly and secret manner as he's there with them around this table. And and secondly, or two, with Luke's language in verse 2 that has this tinge of sarcasm, it's obvious that this man with dropsy showing up is not happenstance. They're setting him up, and Jesus knew it, and he's not being caught off guard, Uh, but he doesn't consult a list of safe and amicable conversation starters or questions or topics, because he's not concerned about any type of relational conflict, and we've seen that over the last few chapters. He's not shying away from the tough conversations He knew what they were up to, and that's why Luke says that he simply responds. He knows what they're doing. And then from verse 3 to verse 24, he then takes his time to put them all on the spot and reveals their hearts. He doesn't shy away from revealing who they really are. And, And Luke uses this occasion to not only warn Theophilus and us to watch out for people like this, but he includes it so that Theophilus and we take the time to, well, he warns us of the inclination of our own hearts. And so what we're going to see, our outline looks like this. We're going to look at three things tonight. We're going to look at three dangers. The danger of self-righteousness, the danger of self-importance, and the danger of self-absorption, right? And is our custom. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we go any further, all right? Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? And would you give us all ears to hear and eyes to see? Grant us the ability to, to appraise and apprehend the truth of the Gospel, the truth regarding Christ. Uh, awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us. And then, of course, Please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through your word. As always, I am weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, and so I ask for your support and your strength. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you tonight. Help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and fluency and with grace for the sake of Christ and his church. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. And amen. Well, let's look first at the danger of self-righteousness in verses 3 to 6. Dropsy, or what we would call edema today, is an abnormal excess of fluid, uh, the accumulation of fluid in uh, connective tissues and serous cavities to the point that limbs swell um, and deformity takes place. It's not a disease in and of itself, it's a symptom of a deeper, more significant problem, or there is actually a primary cause of dropsy, and so more than likely this man that shows up is dealing with a heart issue, a kidney issue, a liver issue, or maybe some lymph node problems, but regardless of what it is, as one commentator pointed out, he would have been viewed, or this would have been viewed, as God's judgment for either sin or uncleanness. And I've already mentioned that this is a setup, and and Jesus is 
uh, not caught off guard, but this was the Sabbath, and as Aaron pointed out a couple of weeks ago, uh, according to the man-made tradition, not the law, there were 39 rules governing the Sabbath, and one of those included not healing. Healing could not be carried out on the Sabbath, it was considered work, and so here this here this man is showing up in this debilitating, debilitated state. Uh, he's in this horrible condition. And rather than show the man compassion and mercy and come alongside to help him, the ruler of the Pharisees and all of his cronies have chosen rather to use him for their own vile end. And they wanted Jesus to heal the man only, only so that they could charge him with breaking their traditions. But Jesus, again, knows what's going on, and so He responds. And He responds as He has done throughout this Gospel. He responds with a question. He asks very simply, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And if that sounds familiar, right, we've just been down this road. This has already been answered. It was answered two weeks ago, and we're right back here again. And of course, interestingly, they they don't answer his question. They remain silent. And they remain silent because they knew that the law did not prohibit the healing of this man on the Sabbath. So they've really, they've got two ways to go, they've got two ways they can answer this. One, they can either be dishonest and say, no, it is not lawful, and they would be found guilty of lying. Or they could answer in the positive. They could say, yes, it is lawful. But in doing so, they would have to admit that their own traditions were contrary to the law. So he has them in a very, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Right? They would have to admit that their own man-made traditions, or they were concerned more about their man-made traditions than they were the law. They were more interested in and keeping themselves and others in bondage in order to justify themselves before God and before other people than they were to actually keep the law that they were supposedly trying to honor and protect. So the only alternative in their mind, they had become, we've said this many times, they had become a distraction. They and their traditions were, that were imperfect had become a distraction so that people were unable to see the law and all its, what, per- perfection. And so their only alternative was to remain silent. And knowing that it's absolutely, or it was absolutely lawful to heal this man, Jesus does just that. He heals him, and then he sends him on his way. And then he looks at the group... Who, right? They're, they're probably at this point. Remember what they're out to do. So he's healed this man. So they begin to look at one another, thinking they have him. And he says, which of you, having a son or an ox in a well, has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? In other words, you're still a bunch of hypocrites. Not one of you would leave your son or even an ox in the well until tomorrow. You would get him out immediately. So why should I have left that man to suffer in his dropsy until tomorrow? 
Right? It makes absolutely no sense. And again, they don't reply. Philip Ryken puts it well when he says, unlike the Pharisees, Jesus understood the real purpose of the Sabbath. It was not a day for trying to catch people making a moral mistake. It wasn't a day to gain spiritual merit by keeping laws that were even stricter than the law of God. It was a day for worship. It was a day for rest and also for showing mercy to people in need. The problem was that the scribes and Pharisees, again, were more concerned about their man-made commandments and their man-made traditions and how they looked in the eyes of others than they were the law of God. They were more concerned about their laws and traditions than showing compassion and mercy to others. In other words, their, their outward religious observant, observance inhibited the loving of their neighbor. Brothers and sisters, Aaron did a fantastic job a couple of weeks ago explaining and implying this very truth, right, from the passage that he was able to preach. And what I want to do is just simply take a minute to expound on one thing he said, not, not because there's anything to improve upon, but simply that there's just something to add from our text tonight. If you remember, he asked the question, how should we keep the Sabbath? And he answered by reading from our confession, and rightly so. And he, he quoted the last part, he quoted most of it, but then he quoted the last part which says this, by spending, by spending the day in exercises of public and private worship and in duties of necessity and mercy, doing good to our neighbors. And that's what I want to just take a minute to Expound upon. We're called to exhibit mercy to others. Right? It's something that we're to do. We're to draw upon the mercy that has been exhibited to us by God in the person and work of Christ. And out of that overflow, we're to show that mercy to others. And the Sabbath provides the time that we might otherwise, well, that might be elusive during the other six days of the week. The Sabbath provides us with the opportunity, that, that time we need to do just that. And so it would be helpful for us, if, we, if, if we're thinking along those lines, it would be helpful for us, surprise I'm sure to you, is to ask ourselves a few questions. We obviously enjoy our rest at home. We obviously enjoy gathering for worship and fellowship. But on the Lord's Day, let's ask these questions. Are the healthy among us showing mercy to the sick, both inside and outside of our body, through visitation at home or in the hospital? Are the wealthy among us showing mercy to those less fortunate inside and outside of our body, meeting both short-term and long-term needs? Our fathers are our fathers showing mercy to their families by, by dedicating uninterrupted and attention to them. Are, are all of us, are, are we all showing mercy to the lost by sharing the gospel with them? 
If we aren't, what might we do to change that? How might we redeem our time on the Lord's day? Questions for us to consider. Well, Jesus moves from the dangers of self-righteousness to the danger of self-importance in verses 7 to 11. As everyone's coming into the house, Jesus notices something, right? He's watching. He's a people watcher. He sees some things going on as they're making their way to that triclinium. We've mentioned that before, this U-shape, couches that are in U-shape. There's a head table and there are two coming off the side. And as they're all coming in, uh, he notices that they're all vying for position. They're all um, posturing. Uh, the most prestigious and positions, of course, were on the right and left of the host and moved from the center out and around the U. And so they're all trying to get as close as they can to the center because if they would get to the center, they would appear by the most prominent person. They themselves would feel and believe themselves to be more prominent and others would believe them to be more prominent as well. Again, this was a who's who among the elite. So the closer to the most elite, the more elite that person would be. And they were concerned about their position, not only for themselves, but in the eyes of the others that are a part of this dinner. And Jesus takes this step back and He's watching, and unlike me, who would have been you know, shaking my head and rolling my eyes and murmuring under my breath, talking about all of these people and what they're doing, He sits quietly and watches all of the posturing and everything that's going on, and once they're seated, He begins to tell a story. And he says to all of them at the table, when, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to that person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, he said, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may send to you, friend, move up. Move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-importance is not in short supply around that middle table. Everyone uh, did not have a proper estimation of themselves. They had a uh, more high, or they, they thought more highly of themselves and more lowly of others. Their self importance was fueled by this aggrandized self perception. Their pride and their concern for their reputations and their self seeking ambition, which, by the way, fueled their legalism, was on full display for everybody to see. And, and the flattery of others paled only in comparison to their own exaggeration and embellishment of their own accomplishments. Putting the needs of others before their own and treating one another as more important was an absolute foreign concept to this guest list. And it's as if 
Jesus looks and says, look, going back to last week, your heads are so large you could not get through the narrow door. You need to take a step back. You need to gain a little perspective. You aren't as important as you think. He says, better for you to take the first available seat at the on the bottom rung of the ladder and be asked to move up. Then take the first seat at, on the top rung of the ladder and be asked to move down. And Jesus is doing more than just helping them right, avoid embarrassment at the next party. His point is twofold. One, humility is the key to exaltation. And two, the right to exalt is not in their hands, but in the hands of the host. So believing oneself to be self-important and exalting oneself based on that self-importance are both foolhardy. He makes no bones about it. Self-exaltation only leads to downfall. And it's a hard fall. It's a painful fall. It's a, sometimes a slow, uh, sometimes it's very quick, but sometimes it's just this slow, agonizing fall. There was an order to things. If they sought, if they sought exaltation, humiliation would follow, but if they, if they sought to be humble, then exaltation would follow. And of course, we know that the Lord Jesus spoke from experience, did He not? Listen to these words from our larger catechism. The estate of Christ's humiliation was, was that low condition. Wherein He for our sakes, emptying Himself of His glory, took upon Him the form of a servant in His conception and birth and life and death and after His death until His resurrection. It was then and only then, after His humiliation, would He be Exalted. Again, our larger catechism says the estate of Christ's exaltation comprehends His resurrection, His ascension, His sitting at the right hand of the Father, and His coming again to judge the world. There's a specific order, and He has gone through that order. And brothers and sisters, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians, Philippians 2 calls us to to be of the same mind and to have the same love and to be in full accord and of one mind. He says, we, Paul says, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider ourselves, or sorry, consider others to be more significant than ourselves. We are to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ. And I don't know about you, but the world, I believe, could use a little less humble bragging right now. They could use fewer people posturing and positioning and promoting themselves and seeking the limelight and, and thinking and believing and acting as if all eyes should be on them. We could use Fewer people demanding to be seen and heard.
we could use, or actually we could use more people laying down their lives rather than taking up their causes. We could use more people remaining in obscurity, remaining faithful, serving others, forsaking recognition and accolades and awards that are just temporary and fleeting. And if we're honest, we have to, we have to say if it doesn't happen within the Christian community, if these same things are going on in the Christian community, what hope do we have? It's safe to say it won't. Christ is not only our example, he has made it possible for us to live in this way, in this way of humility. He gives us not only the desire by his spirit, but he gives us the power by his spirit to do so. And we're to develop not only a humble attitude, but it's humility is something that we're to practice. Putting others before ourselves, putting their needs before ours, seeking their best interests rather than our own doing what's in their best interest and for their good rather than seeking our own. And it's not wrong to look forward to or to expect the reward that he has promised for doing so. And I'm pointing to that. He has promised to exalt the humble. And so it's just, it's noble, it's a noble and right goal to strive, to, to think that as we're humble, we can expect to be exalted in the life to come. And that brings us to the final warning. The danger of self-absorption. Again, he's... He's not concerned about having the right conversations or keeping the conversations amicable or cordial. He's not avoiding particular topics in order to keep the peace. He's shooting them straight because he's dealing with issues with eternal consequences. Right? These are eternally important. The, ones, the, the, the topics he's taking up, they matter significantly. And so no one was off limits. And so he, he looks at the host of the party and he begins to address him. The one who invited him. And in verse 12, he begins to give him a little advice. He says, look, the next time you have a party, the next time this opportunity presents itself, consider changing your guest list. Because your current list has revealed your self-absorption. You're, you're being absorbed with yourself. It's a list of who's who, of who can help you. It's a list of who can benefit you. It's a, a list of who can, who can build up your ego. It's a list of those that can increase your standing. It's a list of who can scratch your back because they've scratched yours. It's, it's, a, it's a list of who can make your status rise in the eyes of others. It's a list of those that can secure your position at the head table at the next dinner or at the next benefit. And then he says, but if you were really 
spiritual. As spiritual as you say you are, or you, you want others to believe you to be, you would actually invite those who can offer you nothing. You wouldn't invite the elite. You'd invite the overlooked and the untouchable and the least and the last. You'd invite those who, who wouldn't benefit who wouldn't benefit you, but would definitely benefit from you because of their lack. You do more than, if you were really who you present yourself to be, you would do more than talk about bringing awareness to the plight of the underprivileged and disabled. You'd actually do something about it and invite them to the house and feed them. And then he says, and the good news is, they may not be able to repay you, but that's okay. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right? And that reward wouldn't be temporary, it's eternal. And you can imagine, right, there's a little bit of discomfort for us in this room tonight as we just hear that. But imagine sitting around that table. And the discomfort that they're all feeling. And, you know, and you've always got to have that guy, right, that needs to break it up some, to deflect the attention. And so we have that guy, and he says, oh, no, wait, wait, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he was right. Everyone who is in the kingdom and who is at the table will be blessed. Everyone who will eat and drink with the Lord, right, in the new heavens and the new earth, absolutely blessed. Everyone who experiences the benefit of salvation, absolutely, matter-of-factly, blessed. But Jesus said the problem, the problem is, problem was and is, not everyone's going to be at the table. Not everyone would eat and drink with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. Not everyone is going to experience the benefits of salvation. Not everyone is going to be saved. And that's because, he says, because not everyone is going to accept the invitation. Not everyone is going to respond favorably to the invitation of the gospel. And he says that in this next parable. He says... He said a man was given a banquet, and he sent out a servant with all of his invitations, and, and those invitations had RSVPs attached. And the servant went out and gave out the invitations, and people RSVP'd, unlike today, right? Um, they RSVP'd, and then the time came for the banquet, and the servant went back out. The servant was sent back out. I said, okay, now announce to everyone that the party's starting. But as a servant went out, those that RSVP'd and said they would come are now making excuses, really flimsy excuses, right? Like, like they, one guy bought a piece of property un, sight unseen, and now that it was his, he was going to go check it out. Who does that? Um, another guy buys five yoke of oxen, sight unseen. Who does that? And then another guy just blames his wife. 
but all excuses, right, pointing back to themselves, right? Basically, they all had in their minds better things to do. So their rudeness, right, in changing their mind after, right, RSVPs go out, um, they come back, people buy things based on the number of RSVPs. And so to back out, you've proven yourself to be rude if you don't show up because they bought food for you. But you add to that that they're not, they're not even being honest with their re- reply. They just simply don't want to go. And they don't admit it. Well, that man's obviously angry, but he doesn't cancel the party. Doesn't cancel the banquet. He sends a servant back out. He says, okay, they're not going to come, so I want you to go out into the city, and you find those who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Those that can't provide for themselves, I'm going to provide for them. You invite them. Have them come back. And they begin to come back. Right? They recognize their need. He has something they don't, and so they're coming back. But as he's standing there, and as they're coming into the house... He's looking and he realizes there's a lot more room and a lot more food than for just those who are coming. So he sends his servant back out and he says, go outside the city limits to the byways, out into the countryside. Go out into that area where they're all going to think, what in the world's going on? And where it would have been um, more, uh, it would have been the right thing to actually turn down the invitation, right? It would have been the, the cultural right, culturally right thing to do, to turn down the invitation. And he says, look, no, you... You get them here. And so he, he begins to coax them, right? Because this is going to be out of the ordinary. So he begins to coax them to come. No, this is, this is legitimate. You need to come because the, the host doesn't want there to be an empty seat. He's determined to fill the house. His original guest list have snubbed him. So you're it. And of course... In context, Jesus is saying very specifically to those religious leaders and to Israel as a whole, he's saying, listen, the invitation has gone out. It's been going out since the Old Testament. And now the Messiah is here and he's saying, the banquet is starting. And you're rejecting the messenger, you're rejecting his message. And so if you're going to reject, I'm opening this up. And the gospel is going to go out. Right? Salvation, the offer of salvation is going to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It's going to go to Samaritans. It's going to go to Gentiles. It's going to go to the least. It's going to go to the last. And you self-righteous, self-interested, self-absorbed folks, you've made your choice. And you're going to find yourselves outside When the door closes, again back to last week, and the banquet's starting, and people are going to be inside eating, and you're going to be looking in from the outside. And then it just stops. (laughs) Right? We're left with the tension. How does it end? What, What happens at the meal? Or again, for us tonight, I just want to conclude with a couple of questions. 
And the first is this. Have you come to Christ for salvation? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? If you, if you haven't, the invitation, as there is every week, the invitation is to come to Christ. The invitation is to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of salvation. The invitation is to repent of your sin, to turn to Christ in faith. He is the one and only way, means of salvation. There is no salvation apart from Him. And accept, and the, and the call is to accept that invitation. And if I can, let me go beyond uh, the norm and seek to compel you to do so if you haven't already. I, I, I know there are excuses. People make excuses all the time. N- not yet, right? I just got other, other things that I need to do. I got too many things that I need to do. I have too many commitments at work. I've got uh, too much fun I need to have. Um, too many friends, right, are just pulling me in different directions. Even family just pulling me in a different direction. And I... Listen to these words. What business could possibly be more important than making sure that you have eternal life? What property could be more valuable to have than a title to heaven? And what relationship could ever be more important than the one you can have with God who made you and sent His Son to die for your sins? If all you have to offer God are excuses, they will sound flimsy at the final judgment. When the only people who will sit down at God's great banquet are the people who actually come to Christ. The door is still open. And there's still room at the banquet table. Will you come? And the second question is this. For those who have come to Christ... We're to go out. We're to go out to the highways and the byways, and we are to compel people to come. We're not to coerce them, but we are to graciously persuade. Because the door is still open. There's still room at the banquet table. Who will you, who will we invite to come to Christ? Let's pray. Well, Father, you were gracious. Um, By your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love and to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Would you water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached? And may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.